Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com SBO. Terms and conditions apply. Wait, are you trying to tell me that I'm going to be a grandfather one day? Ooh. I mean, I would be the most amazing grandfather. Mm. I want to see you keep some plants alive first. Continue. You know what? Mm. I'm not here for your drive-bys. Mm. <laughs> Welcome to Season 3 of Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson. I'm LZ, and that other voice you heard is my son, who is also named LZ. He's actually a fourth-generation LZ, if you can believe it or not, and that's really weird for me to say because I didn't have much relationship with the first two generations. I met my grandfather once, spent part of a summer with my dad once, and really that was about it as far as time together goes. They're both gone now. I'm not sad or mad about it, just sort of indifferent, which I guess in many ways is even worse. But, as many of you know, growing up without my father was good in the sense that it taught me what not to do when I had kids. Or so I thought. This season of Life Out Loud is all about family, and we begin the conversation talking about my own. Messy parts and all. To avoid confusion, my son would go by the moniker LZ in our conversation. I met his mother in high school, the last day of our junior year. It was hot. I still have our wedding photos. We were married in college and divorced in grad school after I came out. My husband Steve and I have been married for six years and together for 13. We met around Christmas time. It was cold. Your boy was snatched and wearing tight jeans and a grin, so he really didn't have a chance. Since that night, there have been countless times in which I cannot imagine my life without him. And I'm pretty sure there have been times he's regretted the night we met. Forging a family is not for the faint of heart, but I'm happy to report it's worth it. After my son moved away for college, we moved my mother in. During the holidays, she's making the mac and cheese and greens and cornbread, so don't you even bother asking. And like many queer people, my family extends far beyond blood and marriage. It's also a matter of choice. And my family of choice has a name. We're the Johnsons. We've been together for nearly 20 years. Oh, he's making a move. Roxanne is like my sister. I love her son Malcolm as my own. He and LZ basically grew up together like brothers. I helped both of them move into college with tears in my eyes. I stopped by Malcolm's apartment one day and he had a pair of jeans in the freezer, some garbage about killing germs. I told him it was nasty. He had it next to the chicken. During one school break, LZ missed his flight and was stuck in Tanzania. That plane ticket cost me a lot of money. Damn kids. But for the holidays, the two of them surprised us all by arranging family portraits at the house. They baked homemade cookies and a pound cake. Damn kids. I know he pushed out two cards sometimes instead of just one. Oh, and they're just stacked. <laughs> On New Year's Eve, we played cards, made s'mores, and binge-watched Yellowstone. Like I said, family. But that doesn't mean it's been a Hallmark card. Coming out, divorce, 
dating as a gay father, that was not easy to navigate. And all of my decisions impacted my relationship with LZ, sometimes not in good ways. When I finally got to the point in my career where I could live anywhere in the country, I bought a house around the corner from him and his mother. He moved in full time with me when he was about 11. On this episode of Life Out Loud, he and I get real, really real about that time in our lives. It's an honest conversation, like really honest, but it's also funny and with a lot of heart because at the end of the day, we're family and we love each other very much. I guess that's why it was so important to all of us at Life Out Loud to focus this season on family because we wanted to talk about love and family is where love abides. Sometimes you're born into a loving family, sometimes you grow into one, and if you're really lucky, you have both. Consider this season to be a showcase for the various ways families come together and how love shows up. And we start this journey with someone who knows me as well as anyone, my son, LZ. LZ, mm-hmm. happy new year. Happy new year. Happy last day of Kwanzaa. Happy last day of Kwanzaa. Most important. Amani. Mm-hmm, Faith. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Always, always. First and foremost. First and foremost. Although also last. Ooh. Because mm. it's full circle. And I think that's meant to set up the new year. Oh, is that what it is? Do you see what that is? Yeah. Always no moving idea. with faith. Yeah, Until the next Kwanzaa. Until the next Kwanzaa. Yeah. Probably always. Stands. Always. So we just got done eating um, New Year's Day brunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your favorite dish? I really enjoyed the what was going to be the roux for the peas, but then became the like jambalaya moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was going to use the roux for the black eyed peas. Right. But then your grandma woke up mm. mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. was like, well, we're making it this way. And you know, I've noticed <laughs> she does that quite often. <laughs> Where it seems like we have one plan and then, um, Mm -hmm. you know, things just go differently and we adjust and we move. And we just adjust and move. So you're right. I originally made the root the day before in Mm -hmm. preparation for the black eyed peas Mm -hmm. for the first day of the year. I remember tasting it. It was good. It's our tradition, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And by the middle of the day, I was like, oh, you know what? Let me just make a gumbo. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering because I woke up expecting the black eyed peas. Which were on the stove, to everyone's credit. Yeah, they were yeah, on the they stove. The they stove. just weren't in the room that we were expecting. Wow, wow. She was hijacked, and I was just like, you know what? I can adjust. She cannot. So and I you know just... what? I don't know if there's a better transition into what we're talking about today. In this episode. <laughs> <laughs> because how many times have we thought we had an established plan, mm. and then something has shifted dramatically, and we have to adjust? Well, you know what's funny is that I just got this sweatshirt um, from Beacons. Shout out to Beacons for producing these these incredible, incredible faith-driven outerwear yeah. items. And the sweatshirt says, I had a plan, but then God had a better one. Mm. If you just supplant, supplant God with your grandma, yeah. mm. then... Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to plan. some folks in the house, that might be the same. It might be the same. I'm not sure. <laughs> But it was a crazy 2022, to your point. Oh like, we lived in three different houses. Mm-hmm. Um, the house that you visited us in San Antonio on Thanksgiving yep. is not the house that we celebrated Christmas. At all. And that almost threw off your Christmas gift. And that almost threw <laughs> off everything. <laughs> but that's what you do, right? Like, we've learned to kind of, like, fly mm-hmm. off the seat of our pants mm-hmm. because life is tricksy like that. And you can make all the plans in the world. But then life happens and you just have to figure out how to adjust. Now, for me, that's always been the case. And I think that's in large part because 
you have been involved in my life in some way for the majority, if not all of my life. Well, I mean, I am your father. I understand in some that. Way, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> in some way, if you meant like my actual DNA, then mm, yes, I, mm. were, I was always there. <laughs> well, I was saying in some way, like at one point you left for yes. a significant portion of that kind of like early development stage yep. of life, right? Yep. But you were always kind of there and, and we ended up reconnecting later on around like 11 years old, mm-hmm. going into 12. So, I mean, for me... I think a lot about how, what like what was developing in that kind of time of distance. And I was hoping that could be the center of our conversation today as we're talking about family um, and how we both kind of came to family, how we began to understand family, both in our youth um, and then moving up through kind of teenage years. And then as we become our own adults, our own selves and, and leading up to today's brunch where, again, <laughs> things kind of went left or we thought we were going to go right. Or they went right instead of left. Yep. <laughs> Up instead of down. Mm, or, mm-hmm. What's important know. is that we're all still in the house. Yes. For the most ate. part. And we ate. The food was good. And food was good. And the food was good. Yeah. The food was good. Just because we adjusted doesn't mean it has to be nasty. There's <laughs> <laughs> no need to eat nasty food. Just none. Just none. You know, I think about the what I consider to be the most difficult day of my life. Mm. Still pretty often. Mm. The day you and I were sitting in the car. Mm-hmm. It was the last day before I was getting ready to move to Atlanta. Mm. And I was torn up. And you were crying. Do you remember this day? I actually don't remember this day. I thought you were going to go with one of the first conversations we had when we were reunited no, in a car. But no, no please keep going. No, no, Set the no, no. scene. <laughs> so the most the most difficult day of my life was mm-hmm. the day I left you. Mm. And I knew I was making the right financial decision, but I constantly questioned, to your point, mm-hmm. the parenting decision. Mm-hmm. But... There are a couple of things I knew for certain. Mm-hmm. One, that I was going to have to make a lot more money than what I was making mm-hmm. in order to provide you the life that I wanted you to have, mm-hmm. which didn't just include like, you know, field trips and clothes and school. Right. But someone had to pay for your college. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want you to have any student loan debt. Mm-hmm. I didn't want you to graduate with any debt. So not only trying to like figure out how to make more money, mm-hmm. but I had to also go into it recognizing that there was a very good chance that there will be no one else in position to help me pay for your education. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to achieve my goal of you graduating without a student student loan debt, I needed to quickly find myself in a different path in terms of my earning in order to make that goal a reality. Right? So you were always thinking kind of big picture. Always big picture. Yeah. When when did that first start for you? Was that, you know, as soon as you found out that mom was pregnant? I was or? like, yeah, she said I'm pregnant. And actually before that, because we decided to stop using birth control so that she would become pregnant. Still in school. Yeah. I didn't mm. say we were smart. I just said this is what we did. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, I'm just making sure that my records are correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But yeah, it wasn't like, a, oh my God, we can't believe he's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're pregnant. It was No. We were in the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. Um, Your mother was out of birth control pills. Mm -hmm. And we had the conversation right there in the office. And I just said, well, maybe it's time that we start growing our family. Mm. And so from saying that, Mm -hmm. when a man says that to his significant other, whether Mm -hmm. it's a wife, husband, whomever, you don't get to take it back. Right. (laughs) You're kind of in it. (laughs) You're kind of in it. Mm. Oh, you thought I meant like kids no i was thinking like gerbil right let's get a dog let's get a no 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 no. so once i said that immediately i was like okay Mm. i gotta step up now Mm -hmm. i have to be able to provide Mm. and that's led us from 
undergrad into grad school. That's when I left acting mm-hmm. so that I could focus in on just building my career so that I could provide. Yeah. And, you know, you have to understand, I did not grow up in a healthy mm. relationship yeah. with my stepfather. Yeah. And so even if he was doing things that were worthy of me observing and emulating, mm-hmm. they were always through the lens of pain. Yeah. So it took me a really long time as an adult to figure out how to separate the weed from the shaft. Mm. And I'm still processing that in a lot of ways because there was so much of it. Do you think you started that conversation with yourself when you were thinking about becoming a father? I didn't start that conversation with myself until I started to second guess leaving you behind. Mm. Because the reason why I left was to be a provider. Mm-hmm. What I wasn't thinking about at the particular time was what you really needed me to provide. Mm. So I was thinking about it from a financial perspective. Right. You know, that's what I saw on television. That's what I saw in terms of my stepfather. The mm-hmm. only thing I could figure out was he kept the roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Wasn't loving, didn't hug, none of that stuff. But I wasn't homeless. Yeah. Right. So my in my head, I'm like going, okay, I need to build on that. And yeah. that's where the whole theme of I need to grow my um, earning potential mm-hmm. um, so that I'll be in a position in 18 years right. <laughs> <laughs> to pay for your education. Because I also had assumed mm-hmm. That wherever you went to school was going to be top tier, mm-hmm. was going to be very expensive, mm-hmm. and thus I'm going to need to be there. Yeah, yeah, I need to make a lot of money. And it wasn't until later that I started thinking about the other ramifications of moving away and how that impact our relationship and your development and what it really means to be a provider and a father mm-hmm. in a more holistic sense and not just in a financial world. It took me a minute to get there, mm-hmm. but I would like to think that I did. What do you think was going through my mind? during those kind of you know, years so, when you were away? There were a lot of things going through my mind about what you were thinking. Mm. First and foremost was, I'm not there. Fair. And like, <laughs> it doesn't Fair. really matter what you tell a two-year-old right. about the financial future and graduating from college without student loan debt. Right. <laughs> They're just like, daddy's leaving. Right. And so I always knew that. And sometimes I would handle it um, through drugs. I drank a lot when I wasn't with you. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I handle that through working out. Mm-hmm. I would just burn off all my frustrations just going to the gym. And sometimes I handle it by just trying to pretend like that part of it wasn't important. Mm-hmm. And that the most important thing was working as many hours as I could, earning as much money as I could, so that you were always in the best clothes, going to the best schools. And in fact, growing up the way that I did, in which mm-hmm. worrying about stuff like that was a constant. I don't mm. want you to have that. Mm. Yeah. How was it for you when you learned that I didn't just up and leave, but that I was actually sending like, I think like you know thousands for... <laughs> of dollars to take to take care of you? Well, for me, it was. I think it was less about the money. You know, during those those years, um, I distinctly remember thinking like, I don't care about the money. I don't care that he's working, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. Because even mom was saying like, oh, he went away because he needed a better job. So that he's able to provide in these kind of different ways. Um, And all of those things were very much so things in the future. Which again, a 10, even an 11-year-old isn't really thinking, wow, my future. (laughs) Um, 
But in 12 years, I'm going to be straight. Right, right, right. <laughs> it was more so, dang, I don't have a dad to go to right now. Right. Um, and also growing up uh, in a church where it was oftentimes preached that gay folks just wanted to die early. Um, and I don't know wait, if you remember wait, that conversation. Wait, what? Yeah, there was a sermon where um, the pastor was saying like, oh, gay folks want to die early. See, this is why... <laughs> See, this is why we had so many fights. Mm. Because I did not agree with some of the sermons that I was privy to. Mm-hmm. I did not know about this one. And I think actually for me, now that I'm thinking back on it, so much of your kind of disappearance was running off with your boyfriend at the time. Right. But I didn't run off with him. I moved to Atlanta to take on a different job. Yeah. And he was my boyfriend and he came with. All things that which, were not registering. Which were not registering, which I understand all. wasn't registering. But <laughs> I know? wasn't like, boom, we're about, right. <laughs> about to go on some cruises. Well, it was <laughs> also a huge tension for me because I felt like every time I was going to your house, when it was that kind of one weekend on, one weekend off um, situation when um, I moved, in terms once of custody. I moved back to Michigan. Right, right. right. Um, actually, no. Wait, was this when you moved back? I think this was before you left. Well. Oh, well, the one we came one week off was mm-hmm, before this. Mm-hmm. I remember like him not liking me at all. He was jealous. Very much pushed me away. He was so, jealous. So the him. narrative for me became, oh, like they're leaving off together. He chose him over me. I can definitely see that. And so a lot of, you know, those years was was trying to figure out what that meant about me. And it wasn't just that one. It was, you know, then you're moving to New York and you're with someone else who I would see on the summers who also maybe wasn't as supportive as they could have been in terms of like my being there. And so I was constantly trying to figure out what is my value if you were constantly choosing other people. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, honestly, I started entering the workforce and I was working in media as well that folks were like, wow, he was always talking about you. Everything that he did was for you. That was the first time that I really began to understand like, oh, wow. Okay. Like the things that we talk about weren't just talk. (laughs) No, everything. Yeah. Everything. Everything. Every single step Mm -hmm. from a professional point of view was you centered. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why that song Landslide, Mm -hmm. where she talks about being afraid of changing because I've built my world around you. I've literally built my world around you. Mm. And so when you no longer needed me in the same way, it was hard for me to figure out how to live my life as an adult. Yeah. Because my entire, I had you young. Mm-hmm. Your mom and I were young when we had you. Right. And our entire 20s and 30s and 40s were all about you. Yeah. You know, people who have kids a little bit later, they get to have their 20s and 30s maybe to kind of be selfish or whatever it is. You know, we chose not to do that. Mm-hmm. We got married at 21. We were engaged at 20. We were both in the church, evangelicals. We didn't want to sleep, you know, outside of sleep together outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. And I was also wrestling with my sexual orientation mm-hmm. and thought this was the path to get to closer to God. Yeah. So you had all this going on. And the last thing that was on my mind was you interpreting my behavior or my actions mm-hmm. or my choices as it being counter to what was best for you. Mm-hmm. When from my perspective and my motives were always, how does this impact his future? Yeah. And part of the reason why, you know, me and old dude broke up is because I did recognize he was jealous and it wasn't going to get any better. Mm-hmm. And you were chosen. 
Mm. I didn't just choose you over boyfriends. I chose you over New York. Like yeah. I was living and working in New York City, got yeah. to a place where I could live anywhere in the world, and I moved around the corner from you. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, you were always the center, even though you didn't always know where your place was. Yeah. Because one, you were too young, and then two, I did a pretty poor job of you know, reiterating that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm not sure what your mother was telling you from mm -hmm. time to time, but from the stories that I've heard over mm -hmm. time, it wasn't always in conjunction with the way that I saw things. Well, I think a lot of it was coming from a place of pain. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it was, you know, both for her and then also for myself right. because she saw that I was in pain. Right. Um, I mean, divorce is awful. Yeah. I don't care if you're divorcing because you fell out of love or because of infidelity or because of sexual orientation or gender identity, when you make a promise to spend the rest of your life with someone and yeah. that promise doesn't happen or you have mm -hmm. to make a change, it's like ripping off flesh. Yeah. So it's going to hurt everyone. And I don't think, I don't think your mom acknowledged or, or was aware of how much I was hurting. Mm-hmm. And how much of a sacrifice it was for me to move to Atlanta and then to move to New York and not be with you mm -hmm. because you were my center, but you weren't there. Mm. Everywhere I went, you weren't. Yeah. So just like you were missing me and not having me, you were the center of my world yeah. and yet you were not in the house yeah you weren't in the city you weren't in the state you weren't in a time zone <laughs> yeah. like like yeah. he was crazy so when i got to the point where i could work anywhere mm -hmm. i had an opportunity to stay at the magazine espn the magazine stay on as the nba editor and build my career that way yeah or i could make the switch over to a writer and live anywhere in the country mm -hmm. and i took door number two wow for me this was a decision that really haunted me for a long time until the summer after my freshman year of college. Um, and I went back to stay with mom and see my younger siblings. And I'm in the house, I don't have a job. <laughs> and it's, you know, my mom at that point is a single mother, uh, or maybe mm, she she was teetering on single mother of, of three. She's about and, to get divorced again. But, you know, she's taking care of all of them and now she's also having to take care of me. And in my mind, it was more important that I spend time with them because growing up, that was the thing that I was missing from you. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be able to provide for them. You, you know that I always kind of saw myself in that pseudo older brother, um, pseudo father figure role for them. Um, and so I said, wow, even though I don't necessarily have the resources to support myself, I still want to spend time with them because that was so instrumental or rather I feel like it would have been instrumental for me during these kind of development years for them. I remember maybe two or three weeks into that, like I think we ran out of bread and it was something so small as like, oh, there's only one more piece of bread left for them three, for like the three of them to make a sandwich. And I was like, I need to go get a job. Mm -hmm. I need to go <laughs> like, like I'm not contributing in the way that is meaningful for them right now. And so... That was really striking to find myself, and I think this was something I maybe realized years later, but that was a much smaller moment um, that exhibited some of the same tension that I think you were experiencing. You know, I worked 70, 80, mm -hmm. sometimes 90 hours a week so that you could go to private school yeah. and that you could travel and that you could explore all the sports. I mean, you played hockey for years. Yeah, It's expensive. 
You know, that's wild because I thought it was actually subsidized. It was, baby. Oh. <laughs> hockey track. Surprise. Hockey Hockey's an expensive sport. Yeah. Soccer, expensive sport. Mm-hmm. I was like, why can't this little Negro play basketball like every other uh, kid? And was so you, against it. I could have been out there running, was against it. You had so many other sports to play, and you chose the most expensive ones. And, you know. But you taught me how to ice skate. Well, just because when it was I was expensive, super young, just because it was expensive, didn't mean I didn't want you to have it. it I I meant. think that subliminally for me, and even I remember going to your apartment in Jersey, you still had your ice skates. Mm-hmm. That felt like something. It was such a small memory for me, but you taking me to the ice rink and us learning how to do, or at least me learning how to do figure eights on the ice when I was super young, that definitely fed into my love of hockey when I was growing up. And it felt like a way that perhaps I was still connected, even though you weren't physically there. That hockey class that you're talking about, mm-hmm. which you may not remember, or if I know if I ever told you, but I didn't know how to skate. Mm, that's what I'll listen. <laughs> I do remember it was a little sketchy. <laughs> I didn't know how to skate. So what I was doing for like weeks and weeks before mm-hmm. the class started was going over to the ice rink by myself on my lunch break. Wow. So that when I went out there with you, you wouldn't be embarrassed. Mm. That your dad couldn't skate like the other dads. Wow. So as long as we didn't have to like shift fast <laughs> or go backwards, I was good. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, as long as the drills are going forward. Right. The fundamentals, the fundamentals foundational good, steps. Good, good, good. If the puck went the other way, I don't know. The other, <laughs> team, <laughs> the other team might score. I can't yeah. help you. But it was important to me that you did not feel less than Mm. because I was self-conscious for a lot of reasons and being queer was one of them. Mm -hmm. And so I never wanted you to feel as if your dad wasn't as strong, as athletic, as awesome as Mm -hmm. all the other dads. So I was going up to that ice rink every day of my lunch break. I would eat a quick tuna sandwich that I would make at the crib. (laughs) And I would go, as I would eat it as I went there, skate for 45 minutes. Because this is back in the day when... Like an hour lunch break mm-hmm. was an hour lunch. It was break. an hour lunch. Yeah, break. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you showed up an hour and one, they were like, "Going, uh, was there traffic? Why are you late?" <laughs> so, this was no working from home situation. No, this was not right. Right. What, right. what you're doing right now? Mm. No, that was not my world. No, I understand. So, um, <laughs> where did your you were saying like you wanted to be all of these things for me? Where had these uh, ideas and ideals of being a father come from? Since I know growing up. Your biological dad wasn't necessarily in the picture. Right. Obviously, that played a part. Mm -hmm. But I think also just where I was in terms of like my faith. Mm. um, I was a youth minister. Yeah. Love kids like you. Mm -hmm. Enjoyed very much being in that role of being able to teach and protect, you know, be an example and how to carry yourself with dignity. So I really enjoyed that part of it. Mm -hmm. And... Even though I was wrestling with my sexual orientation, that my innate desire to be a good father was just something that I was born with. Mm. And the situation I was born into further exasperated my shortcomings and the shortcomings of family life. But it it really firmed up my desire to be a parent Mm. at the same time because I was like, <laughs> we ain't doing this, we ain't doing that, and we're gonna be doing that. Right. And so, you were kind of like this opportunity for me to love in a way that I could not get love. Mm. It was also a way for me to, I don't know, sort of 
reset the narrative about what it meant to be LZ. Ooh. Okay, go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my father's name was LZ. Right. And his father's name was LZ. Right. Family name. Family name. Mm-hmm. But there is no connective tissue besides the name. Right. Because of the relationships and the lack of provision and mm-hmm. you know, all of the brokenness that came with it. Yeah. And so the reason why your name is spelled differently than mine, but mm-hmm. the phonetics are the same, is because you and I are the one and the same. However, I will say that by having your spelling different, mm-hmm. I wanted to set a different narrative about what it meant to be a man in this family, what mm-hmm. it meant to be a father in this family, what it meant to be a black man in this family, and also just what it meant to be queer mm-hmm. in this family. Because at that time, we didn't have a lot of our queer relatives either. Yeah. And so I felt as if I was representing a lot of things in our family. Mm-hmm. And some of it was real. Some of it was self-imposed. But I think all of it came from a good place, which is wanting to be a good person and wanting to be a good provider for you. Yeah. I love telling the story of our name because it, for me, stems back to slavery mm-hmm. and not being able to write things down because you didn't know how to write. And so our name has transitioned um, in terms of the spelling, because of how it's verbalized or how it's vocalized, mm-hmm. LZ, 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 you know, the various uh, iterations of that. And I feel like that so beautifully is replicated in our approaches or your approaches to fatherhood and just trying to do better than the person before you, the LZ that was already there and making their mark on the world, whatever that looks like. Right. And so now we're at this point where it's me and you. And we occupy similar spaces, um, both in jobs, but also how we just navigate through the world. What has that relationship been like for you as I'm coming into my own and becoming more of my person? It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. It really has. Mm-hmm. I told you the other day, we, like we transitioned from father and sons of friends. Yeah. And I love that. And the, the, the moment I knew that happened. I was going to say, when was the moment? <laughs> When you called my, you called me up at like two, three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. from the club. Was this in Berlin? Where was I? They were playing a remix of the. Oh, remember? yes. They were playing yeah. a remix of yeah. the Kill Bill soundtrack, mm-hmm. and you were so hyped that you wanted to share with me, and you didn't care what time it was. I don't think I knew what time it was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't even know all your business like that. <laughs> I just need to know your bills are paid, mm-hmm. that you're being a good person. Always, Okay, always. all right, just check it, just check it. Um, but that moment, I was just sort of like, because I saw the number, and I was like, oh, my God, right. he needs me. I got to get on a plane. Yeah. What's going on, blah, blah, blah. And you were like, yo, listen to this remix. <laughs> I think I still have that video on my phone somewhere. <laughs> and Steve was like, It's like two o'clock in the morning. And Steve's your partner. And Steve's my husband. Mm, Yes, yes, yes. Mm, yes, yes, Okay, I love that distinction. But no, when you did that, that, I was like, you don't share that with your father. Mm. You share that with your friend. With someone who you want to like be in this moment with. Mm -hmm. And I had been very, very firm. Mm-hmm. in our relationship and saying I'm not your friend mm-hmm. I'm your father mm-hmm. but in that moment I was like I'm not your father I'm your friend mm. and that's when it was just sort of like huh this is awesome wow. so now when we hang out like yeah. when we hung out in Paris and yeah. we like the broke down Tour de France on the last yeah. day <laughs> 
And it was just sort of like, is this to it? About. Right. He's still alive. They go and they coming back. Like, this is it. I mean, maybe for a good 30 seconds. <laughs> it was a good 30 seconds. They yeah. all went by. Yep. And then we were just like, I guess hmm. we'll have a croissant. Right. Wee <laughs> wee. Oui, oui. <laughs> but like those moments, right? Mm-hmm. Those are like awesome moments now. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I'm not sure if anything would have been changed in the past that would have made these moments better. Mm. So as much as it hurt to to have left you to go to Atlanta, to get divorced to begin with, um, to not be in your life, to not be there for every single t-ball or or every single you know hockey match, mm-hmm. like all of that missing for me is being made up because you called me at two or three o'clock in the morning to share this song being played in the club mm. which sort of said to me that you didn't forget the distance but you've forgiven me for the distance and you're ready to like dull the distance life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com SBO. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you ever feel my longing for a stronger relationship? I did, and I was clumsy in trying to figure out how to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I was also trying to figure out um, how to advance my career. Mm-hmm. And that required me to leave a lot. <laughs> so it's like, he wants me in there his life more. But I need to be over here in yeah. order to make more money so that he can do these things that he's doing that he loves to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you decide, I want to go visit mom in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Like, that's all on me. Like, no one else was helping to pay for that plane ticket. Right. And when you missed your flight, mm. no one else was there to pay for the new ticket. Sure wasn't. It was me. <laughs> you know, when your computer goes out, it's me. Mm-hmm. When you're cold, I buy the coat. Mm-hmm. Like, so while I wanted to be there all the time, I just knew that I can't. Not if I want you to be able to graduate from college and not have the same financial burdens that I did of student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And when you graduated, and I knew you were able to go anywhere in the world, and you were just free 
with this amazing degree and this education and this world yeah. experience and no financial debt, it was like, okay. Yeah. Now, how do we heal that yeah. time when <laughs> I wasn't there now? Yeah. And we've, I, I would like to think we've been doing a really good job of it. Well, that all happened going into the pandemic, which I remember after graduating thinking, I really need to spark these relationships again because I've been super in the books. I've been, you know, traveling around the world, super into my friend groups, but I didn't want to lose whatever still existed in the house. Mm-hmm. And so we actually had a series of conversations, yep. very pointed conversations, very painful conversations, very painful conversations <laughs> lots of tears, some yelling, frustration, some over FaceTime because you were FaceTime. covering the, the protests. The protests. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was and like, for real, we tried to have a heart to heart at George Floyd and McHill and about these streets. <laughs> but honestly, for me, and it's so sad, but black pain the the murders that have been happening have also been central to our story because and i don't know if i ever told you this but trayvon martin which i know was a huge turning point in our family for you for steve for myself you were gone you went to go cover trayvon martin and i saw myself on the tv screen as a young black kid who had just been murdered every day and you were gone and steve was gone and i was figuring out how i exist in chicago at the time in this this very tumultuous moment when it seems like the world is on fire and it seems like black folks are getting killed every day all the time for no reason i had to figure that out by myself and so for me, moments like George Floyd protests, it's the perfect time for us to finally talk about what's going on internally because externally the world is on fire. Right. You know? You know, it's so amazing to hear you. And I'm so happy that you feel comfortable saying that to me, especially face to face. Because that's not an easy thing to say. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, you have all the information and it's easy to sort of process it and tell yourself that those feelings that you've had and those feelings that you might still hold you know, art to be considered because there's this bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And that's not fair, nor is it a healthy way mm-hmm. of processing, you know, those years together. You have every single right to feel abandoned and to feel alone in those moments. Mm. I went on those streets to cover Trayvon Martin because I didn't want you to be Trayvon Martin. Yeah. That's why I was out there. Yeah. I was trying to change the world a little bit and hoping to make it safer for you. And the hard thing was coming to grips doing George Floyd mm-hmm. that I had been covering George Floyd's mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin's Michael Brown yeah. getting shot at and tear gas mm-hmm. and the whole night trying to cover and talk about these stories, you know, for CNN or ABC or wherever the heck I was working for at the time, trying to make the world better for you. And I'm asking myself, is it working? <laughs> <laughs> Is anybody reading these calls? Right. Is y'all, anybody, y'all see this? Yeah. <laughs> anybody hear me? Right. Because I was fighting to try to make the world better for you and for Malcolm and mm-hmm. like all your friends and cousins and siblings. And again, no one can have it all. Mm-hmm. And no one could be everywhere. And no one can give it all. And there are constantly moments in which you second guess, should I have done this versus that? 
Yeah. Or should I use my time here as opposed to there? And what was lovely, I think, about the quarantine time for us mm-hmm. is because we were forced to deal with our ish yeah. in these confined spaces over weeks and weeks and months and months and mm-hmm. months that there was nowhere else to hide and we had no choice but to work through this together and hear each other's story and perspective and all of that. And for you to know my constant fears, yeah, I was like obsessed at one point with covering these stories because I was, I believe that the more that was written about them, the more that would be done about them. Mm. And if something was being done about that, that means I was protecting you. Yeah. And after Ahmaud Arbery, Whew. and you went to and you went to Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, okay, you know what? I just need to make sure that he can defend and take care of himself. Mm-hmm. Because I can't change the world to make it safer for him, but what I can do is make him tougher and stronger and more nimble, more nimble and able to navigate and hopefully um, survive in a way that keeps his humanity intact. Mm. How do you think that was presented to me? Or how do you think that that was received on my end? Uh, I'm pretty sure that you just thought that I was doing it just for my career. Mm. And maybe not seeing the other parts of it, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense, right? Because, <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm telling you my plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dog, I'm going down to Ferguson, you know, but if I do this column right. Right. Racism mm-hmm. gonna be over. It's done. Done. Wow. Bam. Your yep. dad did that. Mm-hmm. Instead, mm-hmm. I would just tear gas and brought my butt back home. Right. <laughs> I would just like come home one day after school and you'd be gone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is the industry. Yeah. When you're a journalist on this level, and I'm very blessed to be at this level, but when you are a national voice, you cover national stories and. Oftentimes that finds you on the road. And, you know, I look at a lot of my contemporaries in the industry, um, gay men, gay single dads, mm-hmm. even dads who are gay dads who have partners or husbands. Yeah. Every single time you see them on the road covering a White House event or covering a murder or covering a campaign trail, you know, beat reporters, the, the people who I marvel at the most are baseball Beat writers. Mm-hmm. It's like a 162 game season. Right. <laughs> 162 games. Half of which is on the road. Yeah. And heaven forbid it's a good team because they're in the postseason. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, there are so many careers and, you know, CEOs go through it. Actors and actresses go through it. Yeah. There are a lot of careers and journalism is one of them in which in order to be at the top tier of your game, it causes you to be gone a lot. Mm -hmm. And I did wrestle with that. And I know a lot of parents wrestle with that. And I know a lot of queer parents wrestle with that because Mm -hmm. it's just one more reason why people um, may not view you as a capable parent Mm -hmm. because they see you at the Glad Awards or HRC dinner like going, oh, they're just partying or they're just, you know, their child isn't priority. And and it's just sort of like, do you know what HRC does? Right. Do you know what GLAD does? It works to create a world so that in the event that my child is queer, or even if my child is not queer, that it's a place where they could just be themselves without being prosecuted and persecuted. Mm-hmm. And so I support these events. I write about these events. And I you know, try to talk about these subject matters and go and cover these stories because our stories 
matter and the best way to do it is to be immersed in them and to be present while you're doing them and and in that process you and i um had a significant amount of time apart and it breaks my heart but i'm am thankful that we were able to repair a lot of that brokenness and right now we just give each other the business right i i hear you on you know just the demands of the industry but i think it's such a relatable story to folks who are even outside of the industry. Oftentimes it's not just, you know, being called to another state that takes you away from building that parent uh, child relationship. Um, You know, it could be working late hours or working multiple jobs, but in our particular dynamic, it was you being called, you know, sometimes out of the country. Right. How has that influenced your perception or understanding of home? I think the first thing you to talk about is that home didn't mean anything to me when I was growing up mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I found every reason not to actually be home. home. And maybe that made the travel easier because I was accustomed to not being home. Mm-hmm. And we just moved to Texas. Yep. Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the 10th state that I've lived in or worked in. Yeah. You know, that's like 20% of the country. Right. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's like, what is home when 10 states right. have had your voting records? In multiple locations. In multiple within locations. Those states. Within <laughs> like, what exactly is home? And yeah. you realize that home truly is where the heart is. Hmm. You know, and everywhere that the Johnsons, you know, our, our family of choice, if mm-hmm. you will, um, have spent the holidays this year's in, you know, Texas. Last year was Arizona. You know, multiple different states in which we've gotten together for the holidays. But what's been consistent has been the love. Mm. So home is less of a place mm-hmm. and it's more of a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I'm with Steve, I feel like I'm at home. Mm-hmm. When I'm with you, I feel like I'm at home. When I'm with Roxanne and Malcolm, I feel like I'm home. Mm. And so it doesn't, it's not a building. It's not a zip code. You know, it's a community. It's a place where the people that are around me can see me and love me through all my flaws and shortcomings mm-hmm. and face light up when they see me walk into the room and I am celebrated and not tolerated, mm. which I felt tolerated at best growing up. Mm. So it's been lovely to have a community. Woo. Ooh, that's <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. Why? Because all throughout high school, I felt tolerated at best mm. at quote unquote home. Mm-hmm. And it not only did it not feel like a welcoming environment, oftentimes it felt like there were daggers waiting for me at the door. And so it's, I don't know if you know this, but I was doing 15 extracurriculars because I didn't want to be home. Mm. I was always busy. And even now in my adulthood, so much of the way that I live my life reflects the way that you live yours in terms of being busy because of those years when I, I, I had to be enmeshed in so many things so that I was avoiding this one. I understand that. And I think for parents in general, um, you know, what's required of you and what's expected of you culturally, mm-hmm. you know, changes as well. So when you were growing up, it was not unusual for Gen Xers to work like me. Right. And it was not unusual for baby boomers 
to not work like me. Right. But it was usual for the greatest generation or the so-called greatest generation. You know, that's another right. episode. You know, <laughs> the so-called greatest generation, the sacrifices and work that was a part of them was different. Mm-hmm. And so every generation has not only a different cultural norm in terms of what it means to be a contributing member to society, but there's also a norm about what it means to be a good parent mm-hmm. and what it means to be present. Yeah. You know, and, you know, maybe I had like a 1960s June Ward Cleaver perspective in which I'm the man, I'm going to go out and provide and the right. woman's going to, you know, support you with the emotional stuff. But you need it and required more. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really grateful that um, I did get to the place in my career where I could be present more. Mm-hmm. So even though I was still leaving for work, at least I was coming home to you. Yeah. As opposed to being gone for work and coming back to an apartment without you. Mm-hmm. Wow. How would you talk about the the moment in which you realize that your dad actually does love you? Um, I wouldn't characterize it as a single moment. It was again hearing all of your colleagues talking about how much you would talk about how important I was. Hmm. They were all the peephole. And I say that because even with best of intentions, sometimes you say things and, and like today we say things and then <laughs> things drastically change and, and that's life and we learn to roll with it. Um, but because of that, I think I had lost some trust in what was said, which is a conversation that we've had before. So it wasn't until, uh, again, hearing your colleagues say, wow, he really loves you. Oh my goodness, I know everything about you. He shows us all the photos. He talks about all the games. It was, you know, hearing that you were leaving one company to go to another. And the reason was I need to be able to provide for my son. That was huge because it was it was almost like the Wicked to the Wizard of Oz or the Wiz. The Wiz. The Wiz. <laughs> It was this whole backstory because in in my world, only being able to kind of pop in during summers and maybe sometime here and there um, throughout the year, I was only getting, you know, wow, this is his life. But not only wow, this is his life, this is his life without me. And this is a life that he's chosen. Um, And so it was, again, wasn't until (laughs) the end of high school really into college when i was really starting to meet your people i was like oh wow i guess i guess i was on his mind (laughs) uh that's really really wow because for me you you saw it as my life without you Mm -hmm. and i really saw it as i didn't have a life without you Mm. like you were constantly doing school activities so that you wouldn't go home because it didn't Mm -hmm. feel like a good place for you Mm mm-hmm that apartment didn't mean anything to me because you weren't there. Mm. So, yeah, I was busy. And, yeah, I worked a lot. And I didn't mind doing any of that because the alternative was going home and being reminded I don't have my son with me. Mm. Who wants to do that? Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> your picture's up everywhere. I just threw your crayons away. Like I know. That's been a huge thing for the family. <laughs> <laughs> like last month. But even that was crazy to me because there were times when I would come home, specifically in high school, um and like you'd come back from a big trip and then steve would come back from a big trip 
and all my art supplies would be like stuff in the in the closet and i thought you guys weren't supporting my art what we I just cleaned the house so alone we just cleaned the house child i still have Fresh your drawings paints ruined i, st- I still have ruined. drawings from like on your refrigerator, you drew me a picture for Father's Day. An fl- orange marker. An orange marker with mm-hmm. the cape flying. Yep. I still have that picture f- in the frame. I've seen it in storage. <laughs> I've seen it. I just threw away them damn crayons. Mm-hmm. Last month. Mm-hmm. I'm 50. In this economy? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was it's so wild. I'm so grateful that we're having this opportunity to talk even a little bit further, mm-hmm. you know, even though, you know, it's for this podcast, because I know intellectually why you may not have processed how much I cared or loved. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, damn, you didn't notice that nothing got thrown away? Like, ever? <laughs> I was kind of wondering, but I All mean, your Naruto books? I did tell you to give those to a library. And I kept so them some still. Black, some black kids could, you know, get exposed to some manga. I did do And that. I still kept them. And it's... that was wild to me. I was like, those were supposed to be in Compton. <laughs> they were. I was just like, I still got your baby blanket. Joe, dude. That was really wild to hear, though. You just told me that. <laughs> Last week, I think. Yeah, I still got your blanket. Yeah. Like, I'm not thrown away anything. Yeah. Anything. So it's kind of funny to hear that from you because, mm-hmm. like, like your high school art, they're in nice frames, mm-hmm. and they still get brought around here. I'm not gonna hold you. I thought that was because it was just really good art. Ooh, silence! <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it was radio silence. Mark that in the book. Mark that in the book. <laughs> it was really good art, mm. but more important, heavy emphasis on was y'all. Did you hear that? <laughs> more importantly, it was your art. Mm. And that's the difference. Mm -hmm. So I think for parents in general or whoever's taking care of children, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to shield them from hardship is a natural instinct. So like I didn't know how poor we were really until I was able to really understand the concept of poverty. Mm -hmm. And then I look back and go, oh, you mean everybody likes things get turned off and they they government cheese? I think, I mean, my question for you is you've spoken so much about kind of leaning your own understanding of what it means to be a father um, and building your understanding of home. Can we take this opportunity for you to pass on a few tips to me or if there's things that you would like me to know um, in the same way that we've been passing down names through generations? Wait, are you trying to tell me that I'm going to be a grandfather one day? I mean, I would be the most amazing grandfather. Mm. I want to see you keep some plants alive first. Continue. You know what? Mm. I'm not here for your drive-bys. Mm. <laughs> mm. It's so funny. I would say, uh, first and foremost, give yourself some grace. Mm-hmm. I beat myself up a lot. Yeah. Being apart from you. And even though intellectually I understood why I was doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, you're 26, you're Mm -hmm. self-sufficient, you're living on your own. So I feel like, okay, mission accomplished Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But there were still some casualties, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, give yourself some grace because no one gets through this um, without bruises and bumps and such. Mm -hmm. So forgive yourself for falling short. Presence over presence. Mm Mm-hmm. 
which was something that our cousin Ingrid used to say all the time. Oh my goodness, I think about her all the time. Right? Yeah. Right? Try to be present over presence. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten better. I know I've gotten better at that. You have. You know, like, just, I'm just up in your life. (laughs) I'm in your business. I'm flying to New York. Where where you at? What you doing? Mm -hmm. Let's have dinner. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Like, and then I would say the number three thing is don't be afraid to show the love you have. Mm. You know, like, if you want to hug, hug. If you want to say I love you, say it. If mm-hmm. you want to send a text, send it. Like, don't be afraid to show the love that you want to show because none of us know when we're done here. Yeah. And it would be awful to leave here and have people who mean the world to you not know how much they meant to you. Yeah. So, what about you? What are you processing through all of this? Well, I want to bookmark. I think our next conversation should pick up on love. Um, So, if I'm invited back (laughs) as a guest (laughs) or wherever we may be in the world, um, I'm definitely interested in how we both came to understand love, especially coming from, you know, quote unquote, broken homes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also this, this journey of rebuilding our relationship um, and whether love is an essential element to family. I would assume so. I don't necessarily know if it's true. A lot of people think that family is obligation. Well, I can certainly understand that. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes to family of choice, mm. you're choosing love. Yeah. When it comes to family of biology... Yeah, I think there are a lot of obligations tied to it because mm-hmm. there is an expectation because you're blood related. But when you are a family of choice, so when you're an adopted child or mm-hmm. a foster kid, when there seems to be more effort beyond just we hooked up one night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, love is first and foremost. I think about Bell Hook saying that love is a practice mm-hmm. um, when it comes to specifically family of blood, mm-hmm. um, but also family of choice. And, and what it means to show up and, and to practice care for each other. I think what I'm learning more and more recently is it's okay to step away and regroup and recenter and come back. Yeah. I'm noticing that in work. I think a lot of folks are noticing that in the workforce. Right. <laughs> um, I'm noticing that in terms of my personal life, um, in terms of my relationships, it's okay. And I, th- I think that parallels with you saying it's okay to give yourself grace. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show today. Um, <laughs> was super excited both about today's episode, but also the season of family and excited to see how the rest of the season comes together. Yeah, so am I. So am I. I'm glad you're a part of the team today. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we talk to fame interior designer and Trading Spaces star Vern Yip about his journey as the son of Chinese immigrants with very high expectations. And they say you have two options. You can be a doctor or you can be a doctor. Totally up to you. To deciding instead to throw caution to the wind and follow his passion. I would be in this lab and I would, you know, the first question on my brain was, why are these walls this horrible shade of yellow? Why do we have to endure (laughs) working under this horrible fluorescent lighting? 
We talk about meeting his husband for the first time and the decision to grow their family with the help of a surrogate. It wasn't important to us that the egg donor was somebody who was a supermodel or this incredible list of top-notch characteristics. You know, it was important to us that she was somebody that we could see ourselves dating. And you know we're going to have a few good laughs with Vern. No, absolutely not. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was like my inside voice coming out. Next time on Life Out Loud. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio. Produced by Trevor Hastings, Lakia Brown, Brenda Salinas-Baker, LZ Granderson, Cameron Shatavian, and me. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And a big shout out to Emily Schutz, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi. I'm LZ Granderson. I'm a mom of mine. Hey, just eat your pancakes. pancakes. Right. <laughs> <laughs>